In this series, we'll be walking through the book of Nehemiah, a man that had a calling from the Lord and responded to that calling with action. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. Uh, We are in Nehemiah chapter 4 as we go through the man, the myth, the legend, Nehemiah and his building of the wall of Jerusalem, or rebuilding of the wall, should I say, of Jerusalem. And so we are in chapter 4. Now I have heard it said that I took off and left for Nehemiah 3, which is just a bunch of people's names, and uh, how could I do that? Look at me. I, I planned that out, that I would actually be gone preaching as that day. And here's what I have to say about that. You give me way too much credit. See, the fact that I would have actually have had to have planned that far out, more than like tomorrow morning, means you don't know me well enough. That, that would be miraculous if I planned that far ahead. Just ask Sharon or Stacy or anybody who emails me all week and says, please, for the love of God, get us your notes or sign checks or just really do anything. Um, and I said, is it Sunday? And they say, no. And I say, well, you know I only work one day a week, and here I am. Here I am working. So, for all, it's just a joke. Okay, <laughs> Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4 really is, um, as much as uh, 3 is names, I want to say this about the names. I, I, I didn't realize they coincided, so I had prepared a sermon for chapter 3, not realizing it was the same date. And here's what I loved about 3. I love that those are all people who are not kings or prophets or princes or judges or Caesars or dictators or any type of ruler. They are all of us. They are just the people of the Lord there in the city. They are the people who were called to do a great work and they answered the call and said, okay, I'll go. And what's so cool about Nehemiah 3 is their names get mentioned in a history book that more than 24, 25, 2,800 years later, here we are reading their names. And so as I read those names, the vision God gave me is, a, is sort of standing up here on stage and looking around here as if I was reading your names. And imagine if as Josh was reading, you were hearing the names of people you know here at church being called out going, oh, I didn't know they helped. I didn't know they helped. I know that there was a lot of people when this church was built seven years ago, I believe this September, that helped with the building of these walls, that helped lay the foundation, that have cut the grass and trimmed the trees. And what a neat thing it would be if you were remembered for the service and the work that you've done here. And I know that you have been. I know that even before I got here, there was lots of things to celebrate the people who helped build this church. And so that's how I looked at Nehemiah 3. As much as it is a bunch of names, it's just the importance that Nehemiah took in a history of his people, of the Jewish people, to say, this family sacrificed and this family sacrificed. And so um, I love that about it. And as we jump into four, we get to begin to see the attacks of the enemy on the works of the Lord. And what is wild is how this ancient Jewish uh, historical book called Nehemiah applies to you and I so directly today. And so we're going to talk about that And we're going to hopefully walk out of here with some insight into the ways the devil will try to get you to not do the work of the Lord. He doesn't even have to get you to mess up. He doesn't need to get you to sin. He just needs needs to have you not do anything. And he's got you right in a perfect spot. Okay? So Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. I will now put on my reading voice. When Sanballah heard that... Really? No? 
that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said this, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? They think they can finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, yeah, what are they building? I mean, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Nehemiah prays, verse 4. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of your builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they became very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies were saying, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack you. Now, who said that? Was that the enemy? No, the Jews, their own people. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the, exposed, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes." When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other hand. Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. You see, I said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and it is spread out as widely, uh, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of a trumpet, come join us there and God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his worker and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his, each had his weapon even when he went for water. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Ask God to give us wisdom. Heavenly Father, we pray for insight and understanding over these words. We pray that you would help direct them right into our lives, right into the situations we are facing, and that you would bring about clear resolution and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. 
Workers and Warriors is the name of the sermon this morning. And uh, we got to get back to what I'm sure Josh talked about last week, but these enemies, this Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ammonites, the Arab, uh, the Arab people, why are they so upset that Nehemiah is just rebuilding the city walls? It's already where the Jews lived. What's the point? Is because there is a strong, first of all, first number one point, there is always a strong opposition to the people of God when they begin to do the work of God. Period. Period. Doesn't matter if you're Jews or your current modern-day Chinese, Indonesian, German, or American, when God's people gather together to begin the work of God, it is an amazing uniting that will come against them from people of all colors and creeds. You want to see the world unite? Have Christians do something in the name of the Lord. The world will unite against it. The world will stand against it. And so that's what Nehemiah is experiencing. You see, Ezra, again, tried this decades before and failed, and now Nehemiah comes down. And so there's four main things that these enemies of, of the Jewish people are going to do to get them to stop. And it's funny because these four things still happen to Christians today, still happen to you today, and I would bet one of these four things happened to you this week. And so there's four things, there's four tactics they're going to use, and the first one is ridicule. That's right. The first one is as simple as something that eighth grade and seventh grade children do so well. They're just going to start making fun of them. Like you would think they would be more sophisticated than that. Like they've got their warriors, they've got their armies. This is not just a land grab, but this is political and it's religion, and we're just going to make fun of you. We're going to poke fun of who you are and what, you've, what you're doing, and we're going to tell you you're not smart enough or good enough and nobody likes you. Uh, Secondly, is they're going to plot, they're going to scare, they're going to intimidate them with, an, with a proposed attack from an army. Third, they're going to discourage them. And fourth, they're going to use fear if all of the others haven't already taken them out. And so with these four devices, what I want you to see is that these devices are age-old and these devices are proven and the enemy has not changed his tactic. So why are we not aware and smart and keen to when the enemy's doing it to us. This isn't new. And this is what sort of shocked me as I prepared for this. I'm going, you know, like in a sports game, right? If I know that a guy is pitching me outside, well, I'm going to look outside. If I know, like we played softball this weekend, if, and it was, we, they had some guys on their team that we were playing where they were always, they were left-hand hitters and they were always hitting it to the right field. And so we begin to shift, but not just shift, shift in really weird, like we had three guys lined up like this, first base, me, and then the right fielder, and they were hitting it into one, or, uh, one of us every single time because we shifted, because we learned. How is it we as Christians have not shifted and learned that the devil is going to use ridicule to get me to not do the things God has called me to do? Instead, we go, oh man, I am ugly. I am fat, I am lame, I am unintelligent, I don't have the ability, I don't have the resources, I did mess up. And we allow that ridicule to tear us down. Now ridicule is a funny thing because as I said earlier, there's nobody who does it better in the world than junior hires. I mean, they're practically professional ridiculers. 
Like, they start at my kid's age. I've got kids in first and third grade and kindergarten, and that's where they start. But they're not good at it, right? Like, they try to make fun of each other, and they're like, you're a fart head. And the other one's like, you're a mean fart head. And uh, you're kind of like his parents. You're both fart heads. But the point is, they're not good at it. But man, by the time they get to junior high, like, my first introduction into ministry was a junior high pastor. And Christy can tell you, there were days I came home, curled up in a ball, sucked my thumb, and just cried. And she said, what's wrong? Like, what happened? And I just said, the kids, they're so mean. They said such mean things about me. They made fun of my clothes and my teeth and my hair. And they said that I wasn't cool and I just need a place, to, I need a safe place, right? Junior high kids are rough. They're, they're, they, they find that thing about you and they go after it. Well, this is exactly what Sanvala is doing and Tobiah. They are like junior high children. They are looking at the Israelites building their wall and they're saying, what are those feeble Jews doing? Now, we've got to understand the word feeble here because it holds more impact if you understand it. It means to be withered or dry like a flower. What are you weak little pansies doing? See, doesn't that sound better? Because a pansy's a flower, gentlemen, in case you didn't. A pansy's a flower. What are you pansies doing? What are you withered, dry people doing? Uh, are you going to offer sacrifices in there again? Is that why you're building your walls? Oh, look, you think you're going to finish it in a day? How silly is that? If you don't finish in a day, we're going to come and attack you. So how foolish are you that you think you can do that? I like this one. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? Now, what's so cool about that one is there's actually truth in it. There's truth in it. You see, the wall was built from limestone, and limestone, when it is caught on fire, when it has fire surrounding it and heats up, turns into like ash, turns into sand, gravel. And so, although not the whole wall burnt down, obviously, but the gates burnt down, it says, in the, it says early on, the gates burnt down and the wall was destroyed, knocked down. But there were parts of the limestone around where the gates were that would have felt the heat and would no, be no good anymore for being used to build the wall. And that's the thing about the ridicule of the enemy. Not all of it's a lie. It's not always stuff that isn't true about us. Sometimes it's stuff that is true about us. You have a stutter. Why are you trying to speak? Who are you to speak on behalf of God? You can't even say a sentence normally. You have a learning disability. You have dyslexia. You have whatever you want to put in there. Who are you to begin to preach on this? And so the enemy will use a partial truth about who you are or about what you're embarrassed of or afraid of to get you to not move forward in the work of the Lord. It's as simple as that. They had an army they had spears and bow and arrows and swords. And they started with name-calling. Sticks and stones will hurt my bones. We've all said it, but nobody's meant it. Right? But words will never hurt me. Then why do we start with words? Because words cut deeper than a sword or a bow. Words cut deeper. But what is... Nehemiah do. What is his response? Verse 4. He prays. Isn't that beautiful? And we see him do this. Remember when he did this before the king? He did this right when he's told the news and the Lord puts the burden on his heart. He hits his knees and he prays. And then when the king asks him, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? The Bible tells us, I prayed quickly. I quickly prayed. And now he's sitting there hearing the taunts from his enemies, which we'll learn in a minute here, are literally 
all four sides, north, south, east, and west, all around him. And he prays, verse 4, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have insulted the face of your builders. Here's what I love about his prayer and what you and I can take from it today. It is not a prayer about self-preservation. It is not a prayer that says, Lord, give me more finances, give me more workers, give me less sun, give me less rain, make this easier, make Tobiah and Sanbala go away. It's saying, Lord, uphold me in the midst of this. I am despised. We have trials. We have cursings. Uphold us. Do not allow what they're doing to go unpunished, but uphold us in the midst of it. For we are building on behalf of your name, Lord. It's still God-focused. It's still mission-focused. Charles, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, uh, no, G.K. Chesterton. Nope, I'm sorry, I was right before. Charles Spurgeon said, God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without trials. And I think that's important for today's modern Christian to remember, is that we are not promised a life free of trials. We're promised the garments and the righteousness of Christ. We're promised the nature of Christ. But Christ had trials, and you and I will endure trials. So when you pray and you go before God on behalf of whatever you are experiencing, do you pray that he will take away your trials? Or do you pray that his spirit and his righteousness will allow you to endure and overcome them? Because that's the prayer. Lord, help me overcome this ridicule. Help me overcome this plot. The second thing that we see here is not a, once they get past ridicule, Nehemiah prays and verse 6 says, So we rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. I love how this is written. I can't express this enough. It's so much fun to read. We insulted you. We came with our first offense, which is we did name calling. Good job, Tobiah and Sanballat. Nehemiah prays, he strengthens his resolve, goes back to work. It says the people built the wall with all their heart, verse 6, I mean verse 7. So when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard, well, darn it, our insults didn't work. We gave the good, you gave the good insults, right? Oh, we gave it to them. We gave them the, I mean, we were, whew. I love how that, I love that. What? They didn't stop building after we made fun of their wall. Tobiah, you used the line about a fox is going to knock it over, right? If it tries to jump into it. Oh, I used it. And they're still building. Well, I'll be. I'll be. <laughs> like, you've got to read the Bible like that. It's so fascinating. It didn't work, huh? Okay. Verse 7. So when these guys all got together again, and they're like, oh, they're going to still build the wall. They were very angry. <laughs> Verse 8. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So what do they do now? All right, we're going to go ahead. We're going to fight. We're going to set a plot. We're going to make sure people know. We're not actually going to assemble the army. We're not actually going to go in with swords and spears drawn. We're just going to spread the rumors that it's coming. We've prepared for it. We've planned for it. And we're going to come. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill your women and your children. We're going to burn it back to the ground. That's what we're going to do. Like, when are you going to do it? Oh, it's coming soon. They plotted, they schemed, they tried to strike fear, and they tried to intimidate the hearts of God's people. It's the second tactic the devil will use in your life. It's the second thing he will do to keep you quiet. 
to keep you from sharing with your neighbor, to keep you from reaching out to someone when you're in the store that God says, would you go up and talk to them? He says, you don't want to go talk to them. You don't know what they're going to do. What if they... What if they're a shyster? What if they do something to hurt you? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if they don't like you anymore? What if they begin to talk bad about you? What if you actually give God a bad name because they ask you a question you don't know? So the devil will use an intimidating plot to get you to not do his work. This isn't new stuff. And if you're sitting there right now and you sense it, you're like, yeah, I've seen this in my own heart. I've seen this play out. This isn't a new curveball. This isn't a new field the devil's hitting to. It's the same exact thing he does to Christians today or people who love the Lord today. But what do they do? Verse 9, what do they do when they set the plot and they begin to spread the rumors amongst the people that they're coming in force and they're going to kill everybody? Verse, what's verse 9 say? They prayed again. You guys starting to think maybe there's power in this thing called prayer? <laughs> Sort of the same, same insight, right? The offense. I talked about the defense being out in the field playing softball. The offense. I'm just having a bad day. I was grounding out. I was popping up. And it's because I was early and I was dropping my shoulder over and over. And I just needed to go back to the basics. A nice, compact, easy level swing. I think for a lot of us Christians, we sit and we struggle and we fight. And we need to just go back to the basics. Every time... Nehemiah encountered the attack of the enemy. He went back to the basics, which is to pray. And I feel, and here's how I felt hitting. I was like, no, I'm just going to find one and I'm going to crush it and then I'll be out of it. Then I'll be out of it. And that's how you get in that mindset and you think. And we think prayer, prayers, no, 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 not prayer. Prayer is too simple. I do, I did pray. I woke up this morning and I said, God, make it a good day. I remember I said, help my wife love you and be better than she was yesterday. I pray that every morning. It's a real good prayer. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I prayed. I tried to pray. Or, or here's one. Prayer doesn't work. I prayed and it didn't pan out. And so we, in our modern times, don't look at prayer as being that effective, basic tool, that swing level, short swing, compact, do the basics and you'll hit. Verse 9, we prayed to our God, and then we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. We prayed to a God, and then we acted. We prayed, and then we moved. Not we prayed, and then we sat there and waited for heaven to give us an answer. Well, I prayed. No, we posted guards at every gate, and at every weak point of the wall, and by every family building the wall near their house, we posted guards and men with swords. And then we gave swords to the people who had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other so that they would be prepared. And when that trumpet blew, the rest of the entire city would come running to that point. So you weren't going to overtake us and you weren't going to surprise us with your intimidating plot. Come at me, bro. This is the, this is the OG way of saying, come at me, bro. So what was the third way? Third way we see in verse 10. Uh, and this one, this one stinks. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one, and then we'll, we'll close out with the last one, fear, real quickly. But this one stinks because this one isn't an outside force. This isn't Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, or the Ashdods, or the Ammonite. This isn't any of those people surrounding the city of Jerusalem and its broken walls. This one comes from within. This is the one called discouragement. 
which isn't brought by our enemies, but is brought from people within the camp, is brought from fellow Christian brothers and sisters, fellow people that you trusted and you believed had your back. And it's discouragement. Verse 10, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble, we couldn't possibly rebuild the wall. Plus, here's what our enemies are saying about us, guys. I don't know if you heard this, but this is what I read. They're telling us that before they know it or see us, we're going to be right there among them, and they're going to kill us and put an end to our work. Guys, they know about our guards. They know about the stations that Nehemiah has at night to make sure that we're covered 24-7. Here's the deal. They'll still come, and they're going to get past our defenses, and they're going to kill us. Discouragement from within. You see the third tactic? Isn't it amazing? They started with ridicule, and then they moved to rumors of war and attacks, and now they've moved on to their own internal struggles. They are causing the stoppage. They are causing the work of the Lord to come to a halt. And no arrow has been fired, no shots fired, right? Nothing like that has happened yet, but all of these threats have come to the work of the Lord being stopped. Let me say this, it is, <laughs> it's easy to carry on your task that the Lord has given you until you forget the reason you're doing it, right? I've been on mission trips before and you get into day five or six and you've got bug bites and your muscles are sore and you haven't had proper bowel movements in a couple days now <laughs> and you're like, why am I here again? Why am I doing this? And then... You get to see someone give their life to the Lord or you get to see the light turn on for someone for the first time and you go, oh yeah, that's right. That's why I'm doing this. Discouragement comes when you forget the purpose of the work you are doing. So how do we stay on task? How do we remember the purpose? Well, there's a few things and uh, we see it here. We are not able becomes the rallying cry of a Christian in compromise. You hear me? They say, we are not able, there's too much rubble, we're not able to defend ourselves, they'll overtake and kill us. We don't say that, we say, I'm not able to serve at the church, I'm not able to serve at this local mission, I'm not able to go to Genesis Project on Fridays, I'm not able to do a small group because of my work schedule, I'm not able to give financially, I'm not able to serve in children's ministry, I'm not able to spend time with my kids or go to their games because of work, I'm not able to do this because of my health. Am I hitting anyone, have I missed anyone yet? I'm not able, I'm not able, I'm not able to do the things the Lord has called me to because I have compromised elsewhere. Look at this. There is, you can see here, and we learn later on in Numbers, I think verse 6, yeah, that those who were complaining, those who were bringing the discouragement, who were bringing the words of discord saying, we're going to be overtaken. They were those who had married with people outside of the Jewish faith. And they are those who had business and financial interests in Samaria, the Philistines, and Ashdod. So, sex and money. They had compromised. For the Jewish people to have married outside at this time and in their lineage was a completely against what God had called them to do. It was against the law. And so these people had been there without a priest, without the book, without anyone to lead them, and so they began to just 
do whatever they wanted. And so now these people are realizing if we build this wall, if we make this distinction that we are God's people and we stand for this thing, we stand for these morals, we stand for his laws, well, then I'm going to lose my family. If, if we get back to the priesthood, they're going to see that I've married outside of where I'm supposed to. We better stop this wall from getting built. And then you had those who had trade routes and were making money in these villages, and they realized, and they were being told by the, the enemies, if you continue to have your people build this wall, you will no longer be allowed to trade here. You'll no longer be allowed to make money here. And so they brought back discord to the workers. They brought back discord to those who were building the wall. You think that happens today? <laughs> See what I mean? Those people, they were God's people still, they're Jewish people, are secretly cooperating with the enemy. When we compromise values and truth in our life, we cannot continue the work the Lord has called us to do. You can't. Jesus, and Christ, Jesus Christ himself told us, you, will, you cannot serve two masters, you either serve God or mammon. And mammon is not just money, mammon is life, mammon is breath, mammon is everything, that, that, that word, just so we know that it's not God or money, it's God or life. He said you cannot serve two masters, choose one, you will love one and hate the other. When we compromise, friends, on moral issues, social issues, we tell the Lord, I've got one foot in your camp, but I've also got a big foot in the other camp, and Lord, I really want to do your work, but I'm totally torn here as to how this is going to pan out. And here's the deal. When the other men and women in the church see compromised people, it discourages the whole body of God. It discourages us. This is, it's, this is like a tough somber thing. But it's compromise. The enemy hasn't actually attacked Jerusalem. Extensively, people were saying, we 
can't do this. We can't do this. God won't support us. We won't be able to. We can't. We can't. We can't. Ten times. So the devil, when all else fails, will use fear to paralyze you. And then your fear will paralyze others. So my goal this morning is not to get you to be fearful. Oh no, I'm compromised in some way. Uh Uh-oh, that's me. I'm compromised in this. I totally know it. I know this is the way I'm compromised. Now I'm scared. No, that's what the devil wants you to do because when you're fearful, you'll be paralyzed and you won't actually do anything. What God wants you to do is he wants you to take the understanding of where you're compromised, be convicted about it, and just move away from it. That's it. Just move away from it. I'm going to touch this snake, Lord. Don't touch that snake. It's going to bite you. I'm going to touch the snake. Don't touch the snake. Well, what do I do then? Because I've already touched it. Just move away from the snake. That's how God talks to us. He doesn't say, well, good, I hope the snake bites you then. I hope you get what you deserve because you touched it. I told you not to. God, what do I do? I have this area of my life in compromise to you. What do I do? Move away from the snake. about sexual addiction and lust to a group of students at ASU. And I had a call forward at the end with more than 100 kids who came forward. got on their knees. I had prayer partners all along the front and wept and said, I am compromised to God in this area. Christians and non-Christian men and women alike that I got to talk to afterwards. I am compromised in this area. I'm compromised. We're set free.
partake of this sacrament with us. But this is what communion is. Communion is that Thursday of the night that Jesus was betrayed. He sat in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the Passover, that he was the Passover lamb, that no more would they have to uh, worry about sin and death, that he would be the lamb slaughtered, that he would be the sacrifice given for mankind's sin. And so he said, do this in remembrance of me when you gather together. And he broke the bread and said, this is my body. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When you come together and you join together, do this and remember what I've done. Don't forget this